As we continue our time in Luke, our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 20, the first 18 verses, and that's on page 1045 if you're using the black Bibles that are provided for you. And if you are able, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated. So about a week before the elections, a friend of mine who takes his voting uh, responsibilities very seriously, as as probably most in this room do, uh, he contacted uh, the candidates for the state assembly on both sides of the aisle 
And uh, in most cases, he was able to speak with their campaign managers, and he would ask them three questions. So he would ask first, what is the role of the public school system regarding current matters of culture? And both sides would give answers pretty, pretty much in line with their party's platform. He asked, what concrete steps will this candidate take to address the fentanyl crisis in Northern Virginia? And all of the candidates gave very appropriate answers, uh, balanced heavy penalties for manufacturing and distribution, uh, quality care for addicts. Then he would ask a third question. Who won the 2020 U.S. presidential election? And he said, oddly, the members of one party did not find this a difficult question to answer. But after two phone conversations with one candidate's chief of staff, who initially answered, I have no idea, he responded, well, could you find out and get back with me? And so the response that he received was in writing. Thank you for calling back earlier. It was a pleasure speaking to you about some of what Delegate such-and-so has done and supported to lessen the devastation of the fentanyl epidemic on Virginia. Sorry I didn't have an immediate answer to your question about the 2020 election. Speaking to the delegate about the issue, he focused on his commitment to state legislative issues. Partly, part of why we had not discussed it previously is because while we work towards ensuring election integrity measures are codified in Virginia, national and federal political issues are simply outside of our purview. He is committed to ensuring that elections are conducted in Virginia in such a way that there is not a question as to who won or lost. Regardless of what the national political issues may be, he will support the measures necessary to ensure the security of Virginia's elections, as that is what he was elected to do and what he will seek to continue to do. And so he responded, also in writing, I'll take that as a he's not sure or he does not want to answer. As such, I will be voting for another candidate. Truth and conviction matter more than policy positions. So partly I, I tell you this or remind you of this because we're entering into a year where elections seem even bigger than the, the ones just this past November. And while it's important to understand what policy positions people take, it's also important to find out, does truth matter? Does your conviction on what is true matter, whether it's popular or not? We have in this passage just three kind of images of rejection, the rejection of Jesus' authority. We have the rejection of the landowner in the, in the parable. We have the rejection of the cornerstone in the, the scripture that Jesus quotes. 
The chief priests and the scribes and the elders, as you noticed in the passage, tend to take the same stance as this delegate seemed to take toward truth, or at least toward a willingness to admit to your convictions. These chief priests, scribes, and elders, this is sort of a code when, when Scripture, or especially the New Testament, talks about the chief priests, scribes, and elders it's usually talking about a subset of a group called the Sanhedrin. So every city in Israel had a Sanhedrin. They were the judges of that city. They would hear cases. In the, nor- in the smaller cities, there would be 25- 23 priests, scribes, and elders. But in Jerusalem, it was called the Great Sanhedrin. It was made up of 70 elders and the high priest, 71 men, and it was in many senses like our Supreme Court. It was the place that you brought your final appeal. It was a place that larger decisions were made. It was the last place, it was your last hope for truth and justice. And so when you came to the great Sanhedrin, The last thing you wanted was men who would sidestep truth claims or even avoid admitting their own convictions for fear of whether it might not be popular. This is exactly what the Sanhedrin is doing. We're told that Jesus comes into the temple preaching or teaching and preaching the gospel. We are now here at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. And Luke, in just a beautiful kind of bookend way, reminds us that at the heart of Jesus's ministry is teaching and preaching the gospel. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry going into synagogues and teaching When he leaves one town and goes to another, he tells his disciples, I must go and preach the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. And now here in chapter 20, four chapters from the end, we're told that Jesus is continuing that ministry. He is teaching and preaching the gospel, the gospel, the good news, good news that God has come to save you. This is the simple message of the gospel. God has come to save you from your sin, from death, from the curse that has been brought on by our sin. Jesus ends his ministry the way he begins. But the chiefs, or the the priests, the scribes, the elders, they come to him, for a defense, or at least for an answer that they can use against him. And in fact, this is what the rest of chapter 20 lays out for us. People coming to him from these groups to test him. Not to test him to understand his views and to maybe learn something from him, but to test him to see if they can't catch him in something and use it against him. And so they come and they ask, tell us. By what authority do you do these things? Or who is it, who it is that gave you this authority? After all, he has had no 
official rabbinical training. And they can't even ask him, though, what school did you go to? Uh, they, didn't, they can't find, like, he has nothing, he has no endorsement from anyone in Jerusalem. By what authority do you do these things? It could be as simple as, by what authority are you teaching this way? Or even going back just a little bit, by what authority do you come into this temple and disrupt our business? But these things could mean even larger things. By what authority? Who gave you the authority over the temple? Who gave you authority over demons? Who gave you authority over blindness? Who gave you authority over sin? Who gave you authority over death? When it comes to this kind of authority, again, back in chapter 4, Satan himself offered it to Jesus. And I think that's some of the implication behind their question. But Satan said, I will give you authority and the glory that you see before you. And he says, in fact, it has been delivered to me and I can give it to whom I will. A reminder that Satan has a level of authority right now over this fallen world. But Jesus refused that offer of Satan's authority. Behind their question is this trap. If he says, I have this authority on my own, then it's he's untrustworthy or perhaps even blasphemous that he would claim that he himself is God. Or if he says he has the authority from God, even that's a blasphemous statement. Well, who are you to say that you speak with the authority, that you act with the authority of God himself? And Jesus is aware. And so is Jesus playing the same evasive game that the the elders play, only better? I don't think so. But he's not willing to let them use his words against him at this point. He knows their heart behind their question. And in fact, his asking them a question was a very common way of debating and discussing matters in that time. Someone would ask a question, and then a question would be asked in return to sort of either uh, reveal the answer or help the person who had asked the first question come to an understanding in a way that, that it would be more helpful than if you just stated the answer. So he says, well, I have a question for you. Was John's baptism from heaven or from man? And while the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders have all sorts of categories for where authority comes from, it might come from rabbinic tradition. It might come from the law. Maybe it comes from the temple. Jesus boils it down. There are two sources. Authority is either granted from God or invented by man. So where, what was the baptism? The baptism of John, was it from God or was it from man? In asking about the baptism of John, he implies the entire ministry of John. John the Baptist, although Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see him as just sort of a a tiny piece of the message of the gospel, 
extra biblical or non like writings of that time say more have more about John often than they do about Jesus. The historian Josephus who wrote a history of of Palestine and of Israel at the time he writes he has more to say about John the Baptist than he does about this Jesus this man from Nazareth. In fact, even Paul finds that John's reputation and John's following expanded before Jesus's following. In Acts, when Paul gets to Ephesus, he finds disciples of John already in Ephesus. And so it's no small person, this John the baptizer. And so everyone had a sense of who he was. And so Jesus asks, is the baptism God-given or man-made? And even in asking this question, he implies the answer to their question, doesn't he? Because it was John the Baptist who said, there's one coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. It was John the Baptist who said, pointing to Jesus, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. To acknowledge that John is a prophet sent from God would be to acknowledge what John says about Jesus and therefore answer the question of where the authority and power of Jesus comes from. And so they are unwilling to say the answer. They show both the hardness of their hearts because they're not willing to believe what John taught, but they also show a very weakness of conviction because if they don't believe that John's a prophet, why not just say so? Why not make your conviction known? Well, because they're too worried about the people and their opinions. The poles will have them down. They've rejected the authority of Jesus. And so Jesus sees no reason to speak directly with them. He just says, well, listen, if you you don't know something like that, then I, I I don't know why we would have a conversation about where my authority comes from. And yet, he still pursues them, doesn't he? He doesn't just leave it at that. He still offers this parable. He still is speaking in a way that he wants to open their eyes to the hardness of their hearts in order for them to see. It's really more of an allegory than a parable, but that's semantics. It's a pretty straightforward story. Even we can kind of pick up what it's saying. Here's a guy, he owns a vineyard, and he leases it out. Even then, it was a common practice. So they're like tenant farmers. They'll work the land, they get free room and board, and they even get a little bit of the profits, but they have to send some of the harvest to the landowner because he owns the land. So when the time comes for him to take his share of the 
harvest, he sends one of his servants. They beat him and send him away empty. And in fact, it happens three times in increasing animosity and violence. So in verse 10, they beat him and sent him away empty. In verse 11, they beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And in verse 12, they wounded and cast him out, or literally, they traumatized and threw him out. At this point, the owner has every right to bring the law down, doesn't he? He is fully within his rights to come and destroy these tenants. But he doesn't. Still, this compassionate landowner pursues them even now. Perhaps we would read it and say compassionate or naive. But he says, what shall I do? And if we were there in the room when he asked the questions, we might have had a couple of ideas on what he should do. But he comes up with a plan for himself. He says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But far from respecting and receiving him, they do the unthinkable. They have some crazy notion that maybe if they kill the heir, they can have the land to themselves. And so they throw him out of the vineyard and kill him. Everything in the story, even if... Now, we know that the original audience understands. The ones who are there in Jesus' presence, like they're shocked and horrified, at least by the ending of the story. But the readers, Luke's original readers, would have understood even more detailed that here's sending the beloved son at Jesus' baptism, a voice is heard in heaven in the beginning of Luke. This is my beloved son. Three days from this conversation, Jesus will be taken outside of the city and killed. What should the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now, is he speaking of the expanding offer of salvation to the Gentiles? Yeah, probably. Is he speaking about the false leadership of the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests and taking away the leadership of God's people from them and putting others in leadership over them, the apostles, the elders, the deacons that would come. Yeah, probably. It's probably a little bit of both of these. And the fact that the audience doesn't miss it means that it somehow includes this idea that outsiders are going to be brought in because the entire crowd says, surely not. But the thing is, in the story, even the death and rejection of the owner's son does not change that the owner is due the harvest. He will have what is his due. The question isn't whether the owner will get what's coming to him. The question is, Will they have a place at his table? 
And before you start thinking too much that this is all about Israel and their rejection of Jesus, the reality is this is all about all of us and all of our rejection of Jesus. As one writer put it, what is the sum total of human history if not the attempt to rid the universe of God so that humanity can rule supreme? That is practically the goal of all of human history. Be rid of God so we can take his place, so that we can rule, so we can reign. Jesus, in answering their uproar, their anger, their irateness, how? That can't be. He quotes two Old Testament passages, Psalm 118, from our call to worship. These are, this is one of the six psalms called the Hallel, because all of them begin and end with Hallelujah, praise the Lord. These are six psalms that were used at every Passover week. This would be a psalm that Jesus, that the entire crowd, that everyone will be singing this week of Passover. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The first stone laid at the corner of a building was called the cornerstone. It sets the plumb both vertically and horizontally. If the cornerstone is off, the building will be crooked in one way or the, the walls will be unstable. It has to be a perfect stone to set the plumb correctly so that you get a level wall this way and a perfectly perpendicular wall vertically. Also, it's the, wall you, the, the stone used to connect two walls. So in one sense, again, this idea of the the Gentiles being brought in, there's this cornerstone that puts everything in one building. It's not a full rejection of all of Israel. It's a rejection of those who have rejected God. Paul, pretty strong Jewish believer. In fact, every one of the 12, 11 apostles who believed were Jewish believers. The first 3,000 Christians to come to Christ, Jewish believers to claim that this is some plan of rejection of an entire people group is as backwards as thinking that this of how they thought that the entire Gentile world was rejected by God's love and compassion. So in one sense, it's a, an image of the connectedness of the Jewish faith and the Gentile faith. It's an image of perfect alignment with our Heavenly Father as we're perfectly in plumb vertically. And our connection with one another as we're perfectly plumb horizontally to one another. But this stone is rejected by the builders, by the religious leaders, by the powerful leaders of that day. And that stone rejected by them would become a rock on which a movement of turning to God has been built and remains still over 2,000 years later. 
you and I are brought into that building. As Peter said in our passage, he's the, we are now living stones being built into this temple. But he also quotes Isaiah 8, 13 to 15, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And some try to dissect that last phrase of Jesus. You know, some, the stone will fall on them, and others will fall on the stone. And, and there have been even like clever ways of putting it. Like, so, so if you fall on the stone, certainly you'll be broken, but, but you fall on the stone and let him break you of your sin. But like if the stone falls on you, then you're going to be crushed. But here's the problem. If you drop a stone on a piece of pottery, the pottery loses. If you drop a piece of pottery on a stone, the pottery loses. The pottery loses every time. He's not trying to dissect between, oh, how should you be broken on the stone? Maybe you should be crushed but not pulverized. Maybe you should be shattered but not crushed. No, he's just saying... Listen, whether you are kicking at the stone or trying to run away from the stone, maybe you're trying to get rid of the stone yourself. You're like, listen, I don't need Christ. I don't need Him. This is ridiculous. It's foolish. I can take care of this myself. Or you're just ignoring it and waiting till the end, and the stone will come in the end and will crush you. Whether you're falling on the stone or the stone is falling on you, if you are not coming to Christ in repentance, if your sin is not breaking you, Christ will. Better to be broken by your sin and come to the stone than to be broken by God. Because either Jesus is the Son of God with authority of God over sin and over death and over you, or he's nobody. And if he's nobody, then this is a waste of time. But if he's who he says he is, your only hope is to hear his message of good news, to repent and receive the gospel. Either be heartbroken by your sin and your stony heart and come to Christ for forgiveness in a new heart, or simply be broken by your sin on the cornerstone of Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, would you break our hearts? Even as you promise in Ezekiel, would you remove our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh? Make us malleable to your pursuing of us. Let us hear when you come compassionately, when you, when you come at the command of your Father who sent his beloved Son. God, give us a desire 
to have you as our cornerstone, as our rock, as our king, as our savior. In Jesus' name, amen.